Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 46. We're going to read from Genesis chapter 46, beginning in verse 28. And I'm going to go through chapter 47, verse 6. We're in the midst of our sermon series on shepherding. And the sermon texts themselves, this morning included, are generally found in the New Testament. Jesus is teaching on shepherding. Paul and Peter's teaching on shepherding. But there is behind it all of this rich Old Testament imagery. And here's one of the earliest ones. Genesis 46 and 7. We're introduced to the idea of shepherding. Genesis 46, beginning in verse 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock. And they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth, even till now, both we and our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Amen. Joseph has been sent on ahead of his family. He'll make that plain later very famously at the end of Genesis. God has sent him ahead to suffer, but to also rise in power in order that he might save his family from the famine. Joseph is now at that critical point here in 46 and 47 where he's about to save his family. But there's a great threat looming in the background. 
If all of Joseph's family comes down with all of their possessions to live in the land of Egypt, well, they can't stay. Not permanently, right? The promise to Abraham and his descendants is that they would live in the land of Canaan. Joseph has to set up a relationship with Egypt where Israel isn't assimilated into Egypt. Joseph knows firsthand what it's like to live in a very Egyptian culture. And so Joseph lands upon an idea. I know how to keep Israel holy. I know how to keep Israel distinct from the Egyptian culture. Tell Pharaoh that you're all a bunch of shepherds, which is a true statement. Tell Pharaoh that your fathers are shepherds and your grandfathers were shepherds and that, frankly, the only thing you know how to do is walk around with sheep. Because every shepherd is an abomination to an Egyptian. You see, Egyptians live in cities and sheep aren't very pleasant in cities. You see, Egyptians have large grain fields. They're the breadbasket of the ancient civilization. And sheep don't do well in grain fields. They eat all the grain. Egyptians have cows. Remember Pharaoh's dream? Grain and cows. They like beef. They eat steak. They eat hamburger. They eat roast beef. They don't eat a lot of lamb. They don't eat a lot of goat. They're not pastoralists. They're not shepherds. They like to push the shepherds out to the edge of society. They're not interested in that way of living. And Joseph plants that front and center and says, here's what's different about my people. In like manner, shepherds today, that is to say ruling elders, are responsible to preserve the purity and holiness of the people of God by not getting wrapped up in running the world. By not getting wrapped up in solving all the world's problems. But by tending to the flock God has entrusted to them. With that in mind, turn over to John chapter 21. Our sermon text this morning is from John chapter 21. Which is going to be our third and final text from Jesus on the issue of shepherding. Next week, we'll flip over and see what the Apostle Paul has to say. But for now, this is our third time looking at Jesus' use of the metaphor of shepherding and what it means for us as a church. I'm going to read verses 1 through 19, John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. Here again, the word of the Lord. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught Nothing. But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered, No. And he said to them, 
Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then, as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not yet was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them. And likewise, the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, You know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Amen and amen. We all tend to gravitate toward what we know. We all tend to drift toward what is familiar. So when the Ulster County Fair would come every summer... They would set up the big Ferris wheel and they would set up all the little rides, you know, the spinning teacups and stuff like that. They would set up the booths with all the displays, the the pies and the chilies and the crafts. And they would set up all the different fair things. But guess where the Bailey boys were? We were with dad down at the stockyards watching the cattle show. And it drove my mom nuts. And she'd come down two, three times during our visit and say, if you wanted to stare at cows, why didn't we just stay home? You have plenty on the farm. And then she'd wander off to have fun, and we would stand there staring at cows. Because you drift toward what you know. You gravitate toward what's familiar. 
In like manner, we have disciples in our text today drifting to what they know. Fishing. Fish. It's what's familiar. But Jesus comes along and disrupts their sense of familiarity. And says it's time to know something new. It's time to know me. It's time to know Jesus. He calls them out of this familiar life of fishing into a new life. A life he has given them through his resurrection. A life of finding men. Fishing for men, as Jesus will say at the beginning of his earthly ministry. There's a fantastic symmetry where when he first calls the disciples, he says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And now here at the end of his earthly ministry, he says once more to the disciples, come, I will make you fish for men. Friends, Jesus has given you life. He gives us as a church life, his life. Not just life in the abstract. He gives us his life. And for that reason, we should live in service to one another. We should follow him in feeding others. As he has cared for us, let us care for one another. With this in mind, let's go through our text today. Once again, I'm I'm feeling the weight of this series where I'm tending to pick very large passages. Have you noticed that? It's it's getting hard to get through them quickly. There's a lot in here. But to begin with, the story is framed by the fact that Jesus has come to reveal himself to his disciples, to show himself. You see that in verse 1. Jesus, after these things, showed himself again to his disciples. Verse 1 again. In this way, he showed himself. The verb is used twice in one verse to make the emphasis. What's about to happen is a revealing of Jesus, a showing of Jesus to his disciples. It becomes again apparent in verse 14. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. In verse 14, then, we have the significance of the showing. The reason Jesus keeps appearing to his disciples is to persuade them, to convince them he's really alive. Because let me tell you, if somebody showed up this afternoon and said, the dead guy is now alive, you'd have a hard time believing it. Yes? And if somebody showed up tomorrow morning and said, no, 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 I'm serious, the dead guy is alive, you'd still have a hard time believing it. And so for three times, Jesus himself appears bodily. He shows himself physically, eating, drinking, being touched. Here is his third and final recording of the showings, so that on two or three witnesses, John might establish Jesus is in fact alive. Now this is the way in which he shows himself, John says, according to verse 2. A bunch of fishermen are sitting around. They're basically unemployed. They've spent three years of their life not fishing. They've spent three years of their life following this itinerant teacher around, listening to him teach, living off the generosity of some wealthy women. And now he's dead, but they think he might be alive, and they're not sure what the significance is of that fact. 
So what do they do? They go back to fishing. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? They go back to what they know. Peter, being the leader, stands up and says, I am going fishing. And they say, we're going with you. They hop in a boat. They go out at night. They throw out their nets. And they get nothing. In this, my friends, we have our first important lesson for ruling elders, for shepherds, for the metaphor of shepherding. Number one, shepherds are those who believe Jesus is alive. Number two, shepherds are those who believe that there is no other life to be had anywhere else. Jesus is setting the stage for this reality of the resurrection. That he is in fact alive. Three times he has shown himself and proved himself to be alive. It is a truth that Jesus who was crucified and buried and dead is now alive. And if you go to any other source of life, you will not find a living. Isn't it remarkable that we still use this language today, right? You guys earn a living, don't you? I mean, how many of you earn a living, right? It's, it's, it's the food, it's the clothing, it's the housing, it's everything we need in order to live. But we always come up empty, don't we? One way or another, we can't pay rent, we can't buy food, or maybe we're one of those people who successfully get through 80 years of life doing that, and we die anyway. 80 years of earning a living, and what happens? We run out of living. We die. What we must discover, what John wants us to discover, is not only is Jesus alive, he is in fact the only source of life. He's not only alive, he's the only way we live. The only way we can become alive. Jesus, to show this to his disciples, engages with them in three ways. He shows himself alive and the source of life in three ways. First, he appears as an ordinary man on the shore. Notice verse 8, 4. But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Why didn't they know it was Jesus? Well, for one thing, they're a football field's length away. The boat is about 200 cubits, 300 feet, 100 yards, something on that order. I can't kick a ball 300 yards, or 100 yards, 300 feet. I can't throw a ball that far. I maybe could see that far. I actually just had my eye exam this last week. I have 20-20 vision with my contacts in. I'm blind as a bat with them out. And... uh, This context says it's far enough away that it just looks like a guy on the beach. They're sitting there in the boat. Jesus is on the beach and he he just looks like an ordinary guy. They don't recognize him. Jesus says to them, children, do you have any food? And they answered him, no. Again, it's an ordinary situation. He asks a question. They give an answer. Do you have any food? No, we don't have any breakfast. There's nothing to eat. And then in verse 6, Jesus says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast. And now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of the fish. There are two very remarkable things about this verse. One is, these are professional fishermen taking advice from a total stranger standing on the beach. These are professional fishermen who have been fishing all night and caught nothing in the area. 
They know if there's fish there or not. It's not like they were like throwing nets off the left side of the boat all night long and in the morning going, where are all the fish? And this total stranger shows up on the beach and says, oh, they're on the other side of the boat. They've been hiding from you. These are professional fishermen. They know what they're doing. The other thing that's remarkable is they listen to him. They throw the net into the water on the right side of the boat. And there's fish. Fish who were not there all night. Who are suddenly there. And John comes to the right conclusion in verse 7. Oh, that's God. It is the Lord. You see, Jesus shows himself to his disciples. He reveals himself to his disciples. And how does he do it? An ordinary man with extraordinary power. But notice the setup. Children, do you have any food? Oh, throw the net on the other side. You can get some food. It's not only an ordinary man on an ordinary beach full of extraordinary power who can make a whole school of fish just appear out of nowhere. He's an extraordinary lover of men. This whole miracle is rooted in his mercy. Children, do you have any food? Has this way of life paid off for you? Has walking this road actually rewarded you? Are you living in a way that's enriching your life? No. No, I'm not. My sin has not enriched my life. The sorrows and sufferings of this world are not making me better. Throw your net in on the other side. Throw your net in on the other side and you're like, well, there's, there's nothing there. And he's like, there will be now. You see, Jesus reveals himself in the most ordinary, everyday ways. They're still fishermen. They still have to cast their net. They still have to do their job. They still have to drag that net to the shore. Jesus shows himself in our ordinary relationships. He shows himself in our ordinary conversations. He shows himself in our everyday life. But he shows himself extraordinarily powerful and extraordinarily loving. How many of you have stories from everyday life when you woke up and went, whoa, that was Jesus? Friends, he shows himself to be alive and to be the source of life in ordinary life, but with extraordinary love. In ordinary life, but with extraordinary power. Secondly, he draws them to himself. Jesus reveals himself to his disciples by exposing his extraordinary love, his extraordinary power in ordinary ways. But secondly, he draws them to himself. When they discover it is the Lord, when they see him as he is, when they know who he is, Simon Peter puts on his outer garment. You see, as a fisherman, he would have been fishing in the minimal amount of wardrobe possible in his culture's sense of modesty. The reason for this is when you go fishing, you smell like fish. When you go fishing, you get wet. So it's really nice to be able to take off that outer garment, to store it in a canvas bag down in the bottom of the boat, 
so that when you're done getting all fishy and wet, you have something clean and dry to put on. And you can go back into civilization with normal human beings, decently robed and dressed. Peter is clearly not putting two and two together here, right? He takes that perfectly clean garment that allows him to go back into proper society, throws it on his body, and dives into the water and swims ashore. So much for being dry and not, you know, fishy. But the point is, is that Peter is excited. He's so excited that he dives overboard in order to race to Jesus. He leaves the net. He leaves the fish. You know how awesome it is to throw out a net and pull in 153 fish in one shot? Peter doesn't care. Jesus is on the beach. Leave the fish. Let's go get Jesus. He's pumped. Secondly, though, the disciples themselves also come. Verse 8, the other disciples came in the little boat. For they were not far from land, about 200 cubits, dragging the net with the fish. In both cases, both Peter and the disciples come to Jesus. But notice the two different manners in which they come. Peter comes with a burst of enthusiasm, diving headlong into the water and swimming to him. The other disciples come more methodically and more thoughtfully to Jesus. This becomes another important lesson for us as we think about our elders. Elders who know Jesus is alive. Elders who know that Jesus' being alive redefines the totality of their existence. That in Him is all the power. That in Him is all the love. And His power and love is in ordinary life. But also that we must be moving to Him. Now, there's a great illustration in this little story of how a lot of us live our Christian faith. Some of us are a lot like Peter. And we come to Jesus wholehearted, full of enthusiasm, full of emotion. We don't care how wet and stinky we are. Just let me get to Jesus. And some of us come like the other disciples. Rowing our boats, kind of slowly and methodically. Not abandoning all the other things that are going on around us. And the material point is, both are legitimate. Let the emotional and excited Christians not think ill of thoughtful and methodical Christians. And let not methodical, thoughtful Christians think ill of emotional and excited Christians. The question isn't the intensity of your enthusiasm, nor the deliberation of your thought, but the direction you are going. Are you going toward Jesus or not? This is what we need. That when we go to elect elders, we need to be electing men who are moving toward Jesus. Some of them will be moving with great enthusiasm, like Peter. Some of them will be moving more thoughtfully and methodically, like the other disciples. But in either case, let us rejoice in the men we have who know he's alive and who are drawing near to him. Thirdly, Jesus shows himself to his disciples by feeding them breakfast. When they get there, they see a coal of a fire of coals and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus has already built a fire. He built it long enough ago that the wood has burned down into coals. 
Jesus has already caught his own fish. He's already fried them up. He's already sliced the bread and toasted it. Fish sandwiches for breakfast. It's ready to go. When he calls them to bring additional fish in verse 10, it seems that he's thinking of seconds or thirds. This is going to be a rather substantial breakfast. This is going to be a rather hearty meal. Simon Peter goes and grabs the net and they drag it up, the 153 fish. No net is broken. And Jesus says, come and eat breakfast. Nobody says, who are you? They know it's Jesus. They know it's Jesus who caused the fish to be there. He know, they know it's Jesus who kept the net from breaking. They know it's Jesus they want to be with. Jesus they want to draw near to and eat with. And it's Jesus then in verse 13 who comes, takes the bread, gives it to them, and likewise the fish. Let me give you a little bit of context. Jesus just rose from the dead. What are you going to do next? Jesus just conquered hell forever. Jesus was just crucified for sinners' forgiveness. Jesus is about to ascend up into heaven. When you have just triumphed over the world's greatest enemy, and you are ready to ascend on high to rule and reign in glory forever, what's the first thing on your to-do list? Cook breakfast for some stinky fishermen? Isn't that exciting? Jesus chooses to serve them breakfast. This is the resurrected Christ. This is the Son of God come back from the dead. And here he is serving them breakfast. Feeding them. This is love. Extraordinary love. This is power. Extraordinary power. Jesus reveals himself to us as the one who knows. As the one who is with. As the one who feeds and nourishes They recognize this is my Jesus and they are drawn to him. And it's in the context of this experience that when they finally for the third time see him as he is. God in the flesh. Love and power and grace in our lives. Breaking into our world and feeding us breakfast. Next time you guys are stuck making a meal. Think about this text. All the moms that got to come up with dinner night after night, because somehow these kids seem to get hungry every day. Kind of weird, huh? Think about this. The resurrected Jesus makes breakfast for his disciples. Because there is something glorious in feeding people. There is something good and great in making a meal and saying, here, eat it. Food is some special sign of love. And all the men said, Amen. Yes? There was this desire Jesus had in his heart to feed his disciples on the beach that beautiful morning. It's in that context that Jesus then turns to Simon Peter in verse 15 and begins his famous 
commission. Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? The these has no clear antecedent. Does he mean the fish? Does he mean the fellow disciples? Does he mean the practice of fishing? Does he mean the beautiful sunrise on the sea and the experience of all night and the wind and the waves? I I don't know. Probably all the above. Does he mean, Peter, do you love me more than life? Do you love me more than the life you live? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I do. Three times. Many have pointed out, many of us have realized, three times he's asked, three times he says, I love you. It corresponds to the three times he denied the Lord on the night in which he was betrayed. There is some balance and restoration here that Jesus having been denied three times, now brings out of Peter three confessions of love, thus restoring Peter to a right relationship with him. I would also note that it's parallel to the three appearances of Jesus. Three times Jesus has shown Peter, I am alive and I am the source of your life. And only then, when Peter has the truth of the gospel embedded in his heart, Does he say to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Our love is a response to knowing him. To knowing his power and his love for us. Simon Peter's love comes from this experience of Jesus. From having Jesus invade his world. Having Jesus invade his life and his heart and redefine who he is and what he's done. To total transformation that Peter is someone else. He's no longer Simon. He's now Peter. He's no longer a mere mortal who catches fish. He's now a house and habitation of the Holy Spirit. And from this fact comes out love. Thrice love. Full love. And so three times Jesus says to him, Be a shepherd. If you love me, you will be a shepherd. First he says, Feed my lambs. Third, he says, feed my sheep. In the middle, he says, tend my sheep. By this, first and third being feed, Jesus emphasizes the great importance that he himself has just demonstrated on the beach. That for people to grow, they must be fed. Mom and dad, is that not true? I mean, what do we do to make our kids grow? We feed them. That's about it. The body does the rest. Right? In this way, the important thing for elders is that we shepherd the flock by feeding them. But don't think of this merely in the abstract. The whole point of spending 20, 25 minutes on the first 14 verses is that Jesus has already explained the verb feed. It isn't just some abstract word. Jesus has laid out a clear expression Elders feed the little lambs and the big sheep. And what do they feed him? They feed him Jesus. For he is the source of life. They show them Jesus. To feed the lambs is to show little children Jesus in his love and in his glory and in his grace. To feed the sheep is to serve them Jesus. The source of bread, the source of fish, the source of life. The resurrection and the life. Shepherds give Jesus to the people. But then in the middle it says, tend my sheep. Tend is a shortened version of attend. Attend my sheep. 
Be present with my sheep. Be in their lives and amongst them, speaking to the reality of Jesus and his life. You have to live with sheep in order to communicate to them the truth of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus wants from his shepherds. This is what we're looking for as we move to an elder election. Men who know that Jesus is alive and that life is in him. And men who have received within them that life and can give it to others. Want to give it to others. Who hear the call of Jesus that say, come feed the sheep. Come serve them the life of Christ. Show them the life of Christ. Tell them the life of Christ. That they might grow up into Christ. This is the calling on the shepherd's heart. This is their yearning. And so then, Jesus having called Peter to love him and to express his love by loving his people, tells him what the cost is. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked wherever you wished. It's a straightforward statement. Most of us experience this. When we're young, we wear what we want to wear within certain restrictions by mom. When we are young, we do what we want to do. Go where we want to go, study what we want to study. We build a life out of ambition. He says, when you are old. Now, first of all, notice there's a little bit of encouragement there. My kids pointed this out in family worship last night. He does say that Peter's going to get old. It's a good sign, right? Like, he's going to go into shepherd, and he's going to be a shepherd for a long time. He's going to get old. You will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. Jesus tells Peter up front, I have shown you I'm alive, and I want that fact to stir up inside of you such love that you devote the rest of your life not to fish, not to the sea, not to the historical inheritance of your family's legacy and vocation, but to feeding people Jesus, but to telling the gospel to the church. That's what I want from you. And it's going to cost you your life. What's remarkable to me is how ordinary this is. When you read through the Old Testament prophets time and time again, God calls prophets and says, and this work's going to kill you. You don't live through this. And time and time again, this is what I have seen. The work of a shepherd is loving Jesus so much that you spend your life, you give away your life so that others might live in him. So that others might know how to live in him. So that others might grow in their life in him. And like the Apostle Paul, you pour yourself out like a drink offering. Friends, I don't know a single elder who thinks they're going to get out of this alive. The ones who do are young. The elders who have been in this job for years recognize this is a job that kills you. And it's supposed to. You give your life away just like Jesus did so that others might live in the life of Jesus. You spend your life talking about Jesus, sharing Jesus, getting people to see Jesus 
And in this way, Jesus says to him, I love this symmetry. What are the first words Peter, Jesus ever said to Peter? Follow me. According to John's gospel, what are the last words Jesus says to Peter? Follow me. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the pioneer of our ministry and our congregation. Jesus goes before us and says, follow me. He is the good shepherd and in him elders can be little shepherds. Following him and laying down our lives. Glorifying God through our sacrificial service of one another, of the church. Follow me. But of course, this phrase, follow me, is being given to Peter in a totally different context. When he first met Peter, he said to him, follow me, meaning leave the fishing and live these three years in this earthly ministry of humiliation. But now this is the resurrected Jesus saying to Peter, follow me right up to the cross and I'll meet you on the other side. This is the resurrected Jesus who promises that when elders lay down their lives for their sheep, That when pastors and shepherds give their lives for their sheep, they've lost nothing. Not one thing. Because He is the resurrection and the life. Because He is our very great reward. When we follow Him, we find Him. When I was growing up, I would always stand on those fences with my dad watching cows. It was one part of the world that made sense to me. John Deere tractors and black and white Holstein cows. That was, that's what I got. That made sense to me. Cows were how you made a living. John Deere tractors were how you had fun. But I remember many years later, as an older teenager, leaning on a fence and staring at some cows with my dad. He didn't even turn to me. He didn't even look at me. He just said, son, don't be a farmer. And that was the end of it. I was not being called to cows. I was being called to sheep. I was not being called to the flocks and herds of the fields, but to you. Friends, this is what we're looking for. This is what it means to be elders, to be shepherds, to have a fire and a burning in our soul that says, I want to preach Jesus. I want to teach Jesus. I want to show Jesus. I want you to live in the life of Jesus. Not this half-baked life the world's throwing at us. Not this living death sin is demanding of us. I want you to live. And there's only one way to do that, in Jesus. He's given us his life. And your shepherds want to feed you Jesus. Friends, find men who do that. And this fall, let's elect them. And friends, if you're elected, do this. This is the gospel for us. Jesus gives you life. Follow him in feeding others. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful passage.
We give you thanks for the joy of knowing Jesus, that in him is life and life everlasting, in him is life and life abundantly. Father, thank you. Thank you for calling men to the office of shepherd, that they might feed your sheep, that they might show them Jesus and cause them to feast upon Christ and to be well nourished. Father, forgive your elders, for we fall far short. Father, give us elders, that they might do this good work. Father, we thank you for that chief shepherd, even Jesus Christ, who through the weakness of our shepherds, shepherds us. And we give you thanks, O God, that in him, There is grace. In Him, there is love. In Him, there is life. We give you thanks for these things and ask these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's respond to the preaching of God's Word.